for me and Cammie because so a year ago today we moved to Three Lakes. So this is a year since we've been here. And it's it's been a great year. It's been a great year. So um yeah. So another anniversary that I, I want to talk about is um Yom Kippur. Who here knows what Yom Kippur is? Yom Kippur is a ancient Jewish holiday. It's known as the Day of Atonement. And it's coming up in nine days, so I'll see you guys all at Yom No. Um, but um, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement, and it's still um, celebrated today, which is interesting because Yom Kippur centered around the temple. And the temple no longer stands. Where the temple used to be is now a structure known as the Dome of the Rock. Um, which is it's a Muslim structure. And so the Jews worship instead in synagogues. Um, it, it's interesting because Yom Kippur was the day, it was, it was the day of rest, and the high priest of the Jews would go into the temple, he'd, everyone else would clear out, and he'd go into the temple, he'd go past the first veil, past the second veil, and he would anoint the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, with, with blood, and he would atone for the sins of the nation of Israel. Um, now, the Jews no longer can do that. The temple's gone. The temple's been destroyed. But the Jewish people still believe that their atonement will, their atonement will come through the sacrifice of animals, um, even though that we know that Christ has already come. Um, today, I want to focus on the high priest, Christ as our high priest. Um, it's, it's an interesting idea. It's an idea that I don't think I necessarily fully understand, but it's one that um, is, is very important to, to us as Christians. So we're going to be in the, the book of Hebrews, um, chapter 5, if you want to turn there. Um, Hebrews is a book that was written somewhere before 70 A.D. Um, 70 A.D., the reason why we say that it was written before that is because in 70 A.D., a germ, uh, germ a Roman general named Titus destroyed, he sacked Jerusalem. And the, one of the big things that he destroyed was the temple itself. He destroyed it so thoroughly that it said that there was no two stones that were on each other. He swept the top of the temple mount clean. There was nothing there. And so in Hebrews, it refers to lots of the things that are happening at the temple, the sacrifices and that kind of thing. It refers to them as active events that are happening at the time of its writing. Um, so that's why we say it was probably written before 70 AD, probably 62, 63. No one's really sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some people say Paul, some people say Luke, some people say Barnabas. Um, no one really knows. But um, it ended up in, in the canon um, because of what it, what it was written about. To sum up the book in one word, that word would be superior. Christ is superior. Christ is superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the old law. And he's specifically superior to the high priest. Um, and that, that's, that's one of the main themes that flows through Hebrews. So if um, you'll read with me, I'm going to start in chapter 5, verse 1 of Hebrews. This is from the uh, New American Standard. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, 
since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obliged to offer sacrifice for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications, with loud crying and tears to the one who, to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So in this passage, it says that God, God is the one who said that Christ was our high priest. And notice how he separates him from Aaron. Instead of saying you are a descendant of Aaron and therefore a high priest, you are called by God into the order of priesthood under Melchizedek. Aaron was the first high priest for Israel. After the Israelites came out of Egypt, Aaron becomes high priest. And Aaron is an interesting person to have as a high priest because his first opportunity really to lead is at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain. The mountain's wreathed in fire and, and smoke and lightning. And on top of that mountain, Moses is given the Ten Commandments. Aaron is down at the bottom of the mountain, supposed to be tending the people. And the people get restless because Moses is up there for a while, and they're like, there's no way no one can survive that. He's, he's dead. There's, he's not coming back down. That's it. So Aaron's down there, and Aaron, people are getting antsy, and finally he's like, okay, okay, give me an earring, each of you. Give me one earring. So he melts down the earrings, and he makes a golden calf. And he tells the people, this is the God that led you out of Egypt. Now, this is the start of something that is known as, <clears throat> I mean, it's a cult inside of Israel that over and over again, the people of Israel worship golden calves. Now, it's interesting to me that he says that this is the God that took you out of Egypt. So it's not that he's saying that, that this is a completely different God. He's saying this is your image of Yahweh. Aaron starts the practice of perverted Yahweh worship, all right? And that is what defines Israel through the rest of the United Kingdom and the divided kingdom. So under David and Solomon, and then after that splits, the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, so ten tribes split off to stay Israel and the northern part. They have 20 kings. Of those 20 kings, how many of you, how many do you think were good? None of them. Every single one of them we're doing this perverted Yahweh worship. 
um, even to the point where they try and build two of their own temples. Um, it doesn't work out at all. So, um, but that, that's really Aaron's start as the high priest. And, but, but at the end, end of that, God forgives him and he becomes the, the high priest. So the high priest's main function was to atone for the people, like I said. And that was kind of a dangerous job. Um, when you entered the temple complex, you first ran into a, a big altar, right? A giant bronze altar. And on this bronze altar, everyone would sacrifice their sin offerings, usually bulls or goats. Um, and then you had a bronze laver. And it's like this big bowl of water. And you would cleanse yourself before you continued on to the temple. And then you had the first veil. You went through that veil. And on one side, you'd have a table with a bunch of bread. This was known as the table of showbread. It represented fellowship. On the other side was a golden lampstand. And on this golden lampstand, it would always be burning. This represents God's light. If you kept going, there was an altar of incense. And on this altar of incense, there would be a priest that would burn it. Um, a couple different times a year. So the altar of incense, um, for those of you who know who John the Baptist is, his dad, um, just before he was born, an angel of the Lord comes to him and tells him, you're going to have a son and you're going to name him John. And um, his dad's, or um, John the Baptist's dad's like, no, that's not, that's not happening. That's, that's not, no way, no way. Well, he gets struck dumb right there. He doesn't talk anymore. He was offering... Um, he was offering incense on this on this altar. And so this it's interesting because in Psalms it talks about the fact that the altar of incense, the incense of our prayers is like a fragrance to God. And so it's, it's this um, interesting play on words with the altar of incense. Then you have another veil. This is the second veil. Inside of this is known as the Holy of Holies. And in that is the Ark of the Covenant. That is where God's presence dwelled. And that is where the high priest would have to go in and he would offer sacrifice for the nation. Now, this isn't in the Bible. I wasn't able to find it at all. But under rabbinic tradition, the high priest, when he would go in once a year for Yom Kippur, if he was unworthy, God would strike him dead. And so they kept having this trouble with high priests dying. So they would wrap a, a string of bells around his leg and then tie a rope to him. And he would go in, and if they heard the bells no longer jingling, they figured he was dead or God had struck him dumb or something. So, so they'd yank him out, and hopefully he was still alive. So being the high priest, you had to be worthy to approach God. And like I said, I couldn't find it anywhere in the Bible, but I, th- I thought it was, it was funny. Um, so God, uh, Jesus is our high priest, first of all, because he is appointed by God. Second of all, he's human. He's fully God and fully man. As it says in verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. This is referring to a human high priest. But we know Christ, when he came to earth, he became human. He's no longer beset with weakness, but he was human just like us. Um, I, I had a hard time at first with where it says uh, in verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Did Jesus need to learn obedience? I don't think Jesus ever disobeyed his parents. I'm pretty sure he definitely cleaned his room. I mean, he did the dishes. He did it all. So why did he need to learn obedience? Um, 
W.H. Griffith Thomas, he's a, he's a theologian from the, the first part of um, the 19th, 19th century, said in his commentary on Hebrews, but by means of his experience of human life, an attitude of obedience was expressed in action. And so it was not that he was learning to obey as though there was any opposition of will, but was learning obedience by means of discipline. This is the difference between innocence and virtue. Innocence is life untested, but virtue is innocence tested and triumphant. Christ suffered as a human on earth, and he learned obedience to his father, not because he was a nice little bunny that didn't have his uh, white tail uh, dirtied at all. Instead, he triumphed over all the trials that he was given and still obeyed God. Um, in verse 9, uh, or in verse 7, it says, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. He was heard because of his piety. Inside of Jewish, um, in, inside of Jewish circles, there's like three levels of suffering, okay? The first level, um, you, you're offering up prayers. The second level is you're offering up supplications. And the third level, they just refer to it as tears. So this passage is saying Jesus experienced every level of suffering and still made it out the other side triumphant. And that is how we can say that he was obedient. He can deal gently with the misguided and ignorance because he's on our same level. He knows what we experienced. And that's why he can be our high priest, because he was called by God as a human as well as as God. Um, and thirdly, thirdly, he is the source for our atonement. He is the fulfillment for our atonement. As it says in verse 9, And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek only comes up a couple times in the Bible. He first shows up in Genesis 14, and he's referred to as the king of Salem, which eventually will be Jerusalem. Abraham has just fought a battle, and he comes to this king, and he offers to the king, who in Genesis 14, he is called the priest of the God Most High. So he is, he is Yahweh's priest, which is interesting because when you look throughout Genesis, there are not too many people that follow God. And the people that Genesis follows is Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob, all these people that are kind of the only ones that are doing it. But it's obvious that there are other people like Melchizedek who are following God and are leading their nation in following God. Abraham gives him a tenth of all of his things as an offering. So this is one of the first times that like the idea of tithe comes into the Bible. So there's no other source for atonement except through Christ, who's a priest on a level different from Aaron. I think that's all I want to say on that. Yeah. All right. So what does this matter to us today? I think it's funny that directly after this, um, this passage talking about the, the Christ as our high priest, it talks about the fact that this is like the basics. This isn't something that's rocket science. But how many of us actually think of the fact that Christ is our high priest? 
that he's the one that stands between God and us and makes atonement for us on a daily basis. I love that it says um, in verse 11, um, concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. That phrase, dull of hearing, is literally meaning like it's not that you forgot it, it's just that you just don't want to, you don't want to acknowledge that you have it. That's what that phrase means right there. These people that this is, this is written to, the, the Jewish Christians that it's written to, knew this stuff, knew it, but they were choosing not to. So they had to be taught again. So what does it matter if Jesus is our high priest? Well, number one, how do you view Jesus? How do you think about Jesus? Um, if we think of him as only our king, then we can't approach him as someone who's experienced what we have experienced, who can sympathize with us. If we only view him as a savior, then we're not reverent enough to him because he is the king. But if we view him as the priest king, he's the one that stands between God and us. Then I think we get a much more healthy picture of who God is. A.W. Tozer writes, the most important thing that you can think about today is what you think about God. That's the most important part. One of the things that the high priest was responsible for was curating the, um, the, the Holy of Holies, the last, the last, last place where, where God's presence dwelled, the final veil, past the final veil. When I went to Israel in 2013, um, we went to a Judean outpost. It was in the desert. It was in the middle of nowhere, um, south of Jerusalem. And when we went there, we were going through these ruins, so there's, you know, walls and gates and towers, and there's all these cool stuff. It's like, oh, this is awesome. And we got to the center of the outpost, and there was a temple built there. Now, were the Jews supposed to build any more temples than the one that they built? No. There was only supposed to be one temple. There was only one holy place, and that was the dwelling place of God. But this outpost, being farther away from Jerusalem, they had built another one. Well, when they had first excavated the site, they found in the holy place, past the second veil, they found a standing stone. Now, a standing stone was, it was the center of pagan worship. So inside of the Holy of Holies, inside of a mock temple that shouldn't have been built, there was a pagan artifact at the center. So my, my question for you guys with this is, who's curating Who's curating what's most holy to you? And what would they find in that most holy place that you have? Would they find something that would be good? Or would they find something that's bad? What role does Jesus play in your life? Is he truly your high priest? Do you live like he's your high priest? When I was in eighth grade, I went to, um, it was Camp Forest Springs at the time, now it's uh, Forest Springs Retreat and Conference Center, um, with my dad. And there was a speaker there named um, Norm Wakefield. And Norm, on the Saturday night session, he talked about the temple, the tabernacle. And he asked the question, is the veil still up in your life. And what he meant by that, what is standing between you and God? 
Are you living like there is still something between you and God? Or are you living like Jesus died on the cross, took his blood, walked through that veil, and parted it forever? And that struck me. That has been something that I've always thought about, is do I live like the veil is still there? Because we know that when Christ died, that veil was torn. That veil was ripped. And this veil was huge. It was like 150 feet tall. It was ginormous. Um, But Jesus, when he died, that veil was parted. And we have a high priest that stands boldly between us and God and atones for us on a daily basis. So that's what I wanted to leave you with. Um, remember that, that Christ is our high priest, and we can boldly approach God because of him.